Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, it's Thanksgiving week, and among the many things one might be thankful for, pie and whiskey could be high on your list. A group of writers led by Kate Lebo and Sam Ligon certainly thought so. They thought so much of that duo that they created the anthology Pie and Whiskey, writers under the influence of butter and booze. They're on the road with readings accompanied by whiskey and pie. We caught their Town Hall Seattle show at Washington Hall on November 15th. It's the perfect saucy company for your Thanksgiving preparations, depending on who's listening along. Please note this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Edward Wolcher makes the introductions. You don't want to hear too much from me, but I am going to just quickly set up our uh, two hosts tonight, the phenomenal Kate Lebo and Sam Ligon. Um, so Kate Lebo is the author of Pie School, Lessons in Fruit, Flour, and Butter from Sasquatch Books, and Commonplace Book of Pie from Chin Music Press. Her essay about listening through hearing loss, The Loud Proof Room, originally published in the New England Review, was anthologized in Best American Essays 2015. Her poems and essays have appeared in uh, many places, including This Is the Place, Women Writing About Home, Ghosts of Seattle Past, Best New Poets, Gettysburg Review, and Poetry Northwest, among other places. I've known Kate for a long time since she was the volunteer coordinator at the Richard Hugo House when I was a volunteer. Like, 13 years ago, and uh, I like to say that she knows more about the hermeneutics of butter than anyone <laughs> working in philosophy or literature. Um, she is joined by her co-host and co-editor of this phenomenal collection, Sam Ligon, the uh, whiskey expert of the two of them. He is the author of two novels, Among the Dead and Dreaming from 2016 and Safe in Heaven Dead from 2003, as well as two collections of stories, Wonderland and Drift and Swerve. His stories have appeared in Prairie Schooner, The New England Review, Post Road, Alaska Quarterly Review, and many others. His essays appear in The Inlander. He's the editor of Willow Springs and the artistic director of the Port Townsend Writers Conference. He teaches, he teaches at Eastern Washington University in Spokane. And together they have created this incredible night, Pie and Whiskey, which is having its debut in Seattle here tonight on the occasion of the publication of this new collection. Please join me in offering a big Seattle welcome to Kate Lebo and Sam Ligon. What's happening? Welcome, my name is Sam Ligon. I'm Kate Lebo. How is the whiskey? How is the pie? Cool, so we've been, we're really happy you're here uh, and joining us for the release of Pie and Whiskey Writers Under the Influence of Butter and Booze, a collection of new material as well as writing presented over the last six years at Spokane and Missoula Pie and Whiskey Readings. We've been doing this for a while. That must be the wireless mic. Hi. Hi. Cool. Okay, so let's start, yeah. right? First reader tonight is Kim Adnizio. Yeah. So, you know, Ann Sexton used to come out on stage and she would start smoking a cigarette and she would say, I'm gonna read you a poem and uh, when I'm done, you'll know what kind of poet I am and what kind of woman I am. If you don't like it, you can leave. So I just want to say a little something about what kind of book this is. Um, this is not just a book, Pie and Whiskey. You'll notice that it matches my nails and not what's on the screen there. Uh, so this is, this is a gathering, a party, a potlatch. It's a, it's a book of poems and stories and recipes from the devil's kitchen. It's a book to stay up late with, to play music with, to eat and drink with. Wake up in the morning, spin the empty bottle and roll to whoever's next to you. And if you don't like it, then I feel very, very sorry for you. <laughs> And uh, so I'm going to kick us off with um, a little blues for Robert Johnson and a little bit of the devil's music. And you should know, if you don't, that most accounts of Robert Johnson's death 
have it that he drank some bad whiskey, probably on account of a woman. And Honey Boy Edwards, who was a musician down in Three Forks, Mississippi, with him when it all came down, later said, well, Robert loved whiskey and he loved women, and some women you got to leave alone. Blues for Robert Johnson. Give me a pint of whiskey with a broken seal. Give me one more hour with a broken feel. I can't sleep again, and a black dog's on my trail. You're singing Hellhound, Crossroads, Love in Vain. You're singing, and the black sky is playing rain. You're stomping your feet. You're shaking the window pane. my palm to the glass to get the cold. I drink the memories that scald, drink to the loves that failed and failed. Look down into the river, I can see you there, looking down into the blue light of a woman's hair, saying to her, baby, dark gone catch me here. <laughs> You're buried in Mississippi under a stone. You're buried and still singing under the ground. And the blues fell, mama's child. Tore me all upside, tore me all upside, tore me all upside down. Our next reader is Anastasia Renee. Kim warmed it up. Apocalypse approaching with pie and whiskey. Day one with pie. You wiggle your smile under your nose so as not to show that you are happy with your pie. You are suffocated with guilt over being happy because, I mean, so many people are not. So many people throwing themselves over the rainbow to be seen. There's a scene in one of your favorite movies where the two women have to say goodbye to each other and they don't have pie. Have to do this while clapping hands and singing in a tall field of flowers but not cotton, just tall flowers and you know you are not a woman in that movie. And you know you have not thrown yourself yonder never to be seen. And you know your voice is not a dormant thing waiting to pounce and the cat knows who doesn't have pie. The secret, the secret what it seems like so much of the place in God's hands is cry me a river and Jesus wept. You, plus your happy, plus your pie, wiggle, decide, maybe you should be sad. Maybe you should drudge up all your old soot from the river, bed your thoughts like sexy men out in the town. Tell them to procreate, make a little symphony of dimpled thought. Make them sing like a choir on a stage, three of them with a solo. One, this makes you happy to know you will join the choir of sad. Two, sway your torso back and forth like some kind of snake longing for more slither and less slide. Three, tell your father, your son, and a homeless holy ghost. Day two, but with whiskey. You feel a faint heavy, like a speeding train or shooting scar. Make a little symphony of dimpled thoughts you remember. Day three, with pie and whiskey. You consistently watch CNN and listen to your friends talk about the impending heaviness in the air. You have felt this heaviness for years. Therefore, your ass cheeks are not squeezing life in. 
<laughs> you have been placed in what scientists are now naming the pile of indifference, but you are not indifferent, just intuitive and knowing. What you know is not all there is to know, and no one wants to ponder a simple wishing upon a star. No one wants to know the answer, and you drink your whiskey and eat your pie, and no one wants to think sun salutations or a white candle flicker can handle anything. You gather your pieces inside your hands like the remaining chips in a bag, and you know your salt and sweet is enough to satisfy no thing. You feel a heavy faint like a speeding train or a shooting scar. Day four, with more whiskey and cheers. The government has done some things with our memories. Some of us are still able to remember ourselves. Some of us are able to remember natural hair and community like it was yesterday, like it was today. All of us speaking in a code about when the Thriller video came out, Black Panthers and Sunday dinners. Those of us who can still remember have sectioned ourselves off into decades. We know who we are because we actually look at each other in public. We say hello, then look away. If the government patrollers are around, we act like we do in San Diego or other parts of the Northwest and run from each other with our whiskey and pie. As if to say, don't speak to me. I am trying my best not to remember, but before you go, whiskey. Pie. Cheers. Our next reader, sorry, is Elizabeth Colon. All right, so I'm going to read to you uh, an essay about getting drunk with my grandpa. This is Blue Velvet. I told him I'd take the dog if he got one, take it if and when he died. I had to say if and when, even though he was 85. I believe saying it could prolong things, stretch time with possibility, and or I could have said, or if you die, I will take it. It was the year the pipeline was going in, coming, burrowing through, strange men wet with summer heat haunting the liquor stores, filling up carts in the Walmart on the weekends. It won't go to a shelter, I can promise you that. You would drive out here to get it. I would drive out here to get it. I was visiting Kansas from Washington, a 28-hour drive, 62 hours total on the train. It was the year I kissed the girl I'd had a crush on for over a decade, standing in her kitchen in Long Beach, California, while the neighbors fought across the alley and clocks in her hall, three of them, ticked over past midnight into the morning I would leave. The air coming in from the window tasted salty. Her refrigerator hummed behind us like an angry animal. It made me nervous, and I thought of teeth and some camera watching us. I'll think about the dog, he said. I pulled up pictures on the internet of dogs close to him that needed homes. I'll think about it, he said. There was a light across the alley where the fighting continued and the wind blew in, lifting the curtain, and I was pressed between her legs, her ass climbing the counter. I was a decade too late, but decided I loved her. It had been a week since the kiss, but I hadn't stopped thinking about it. Hours on the train with the landscape dusting by and now tapping on my keyboard, scouting mongrels. I would drive back here to get the dog, I said, if and when, and I would. I was visiting in August, as I did every August, taking the train Seattle to Los Angeles to see the girl, Los Angeles to the middle of Kansas to see him. His Scottish Terrier, Tyler, had just died. The first thing to mention is that Corky isn't my grandpa by blood. If I say isn't instead of wasn't, will you believe he's still alive? Picasso died within months of his dog, Lump, a 17-year-old dachshund. Lump was the only other creature allowed in Picasso's studio, companion to the artistic process, observer of sketches and strokes. Tyler sat in Grandpa's lap while he watched TV. He sat at Grandpa's feet when Grandpa ate or drank at the kitchen table. Jackson Pollock had a dog, too. There's something unintentional about drinking in front of the TV. You don't notice what you're doing. 
We were sitting at the kitchen table, the bottle of black velvet between us. His posture slackened with each round. We were on the fourth. Have you ever seen the movie Blue Velvet? I asked him. I have not, but I know the song. I went on to explain the opening scene, the ear and the grass, and regretted it immediately. <laughs> that sounds terrible, he said. Ice Road Truckers was on in the other room, loud enough for us to hear it. Something had slid off the road again. <laughs> Ours a love I held tightly, feeling the rapture grow, a show I'd never watched. Grandpa explained the premise, which I could mostly get from the title. <laughs> the new season's focus, Dalton Road, how to thaw machines in weather like that, how some things never warm up, like a flame burning brightly. But when she left, gone was the glow of blue velvet. The song was a hit for Bobby Vinton, the summer Corky started dating my grandmother. My father was 17 at the time, and while he was best man at their wedding, they never got along. Two more glasses of cheap whiskey washed down with a handful of chips and sugar-free hard candies. Ice Road truckers gave over to storage wars in the other room. Someone was paying too much for a small room full of black garbage bags and children's clothes and VHS tapes. There's something sinister about that, don't you think, I said? Kids' clothes and VHS? But Grandpa was asleep now, sideways in the hard chair. I tried to wake him, and failing that, sat him more upright and went to bed. I can still see blue velvet through my tears. I hadn't been close to my grandmother. It's a long story about how nobody liked my mom. I saw her and Corky for the first time in 17 years the summer before she died, when I was passing through driving Georgia to Washington for, for grad school. I'm glad I saw her, I told him whenever it came up. It happened so quickly as those things do. Tyler was just like that, he said. I was taking the train in another week and a half going back through Los Angeles, but I wouldn't see the girl. Bluer than velvet was the night. The first three nights I was there, heat lightning rattled the sky. Every morning, Grandpa made coffee, the TV loud on American pickers, Mike and Frank exploring some old man's barn, the jug of black velvet back on the counter next to the bread. Toast, he asked. Sure. Grandpa and I sat at the table, ate toast, and read the morning paper, which, like most papers, had been reduced to a handful of pages. Late afternoon, in the heat of the day, I walked across the dry lake bed and back, listening to the dog day cicadas roar, and watching dust clouds roiling miles in the distance from the pipes going in. Thank you. All right, our next reader is Angela Garbus. Let's give her a hand. So we're gathered here tonight over pie and whiskey. Well, I have a confession to make. Our collective embrace of pie is, in truth, a recipe I can't quite follow. My America has never been as American as apple pie. The nostalgia it inspires in others lasts in me about as long as warm butter squeezed between your fingers stays solid. It dissipates quickly, flour sprinkled on a wooden board that soon evaporates into a cloud of kitchen air. You don't even need to say the word or write a full sentence to make people swoon with sentimentality and longing. Just say, flaky, buttery, golden, grandma, well-browned. My America is about doing well while brown. Less pie, more pork braised in soy and vinegar, and for dessert, canned cream corn mixed in a glass with milk, crushed ice, and sugar. My America is as American as Little Caesar's pizza served with a side of white rice. This America, polyglot, doused in fish sauce and calamansi juice, probably wouldn't draw crowds for a night like tonight. The fruit that fills our pies, maybe they come from Driscoll's or their local supplier here, Sakuma Brothers Farm in the Skagit Valley. For the last four years, the Latino workers of Sakuma Brothers called for a boycott of their employer, alleging inhumane working conditions, sexual harassment, and sub-minimum wages. In eastern Washington, where heirloom apples, the best for baking, are grown, 
Workers hover high on ladders, picking three to four apples at a time for 12 hours a day. They get paid only for every 1,000 pound box they fill, $16 per box. The best can fill 15 boxes a day. This is your America, too. Maybe our America is as American as bourbon, the country's so-called native spirit. Now, even the biggest distilleries market their whiskey and bourbon as artisan, small batch stuff, poured by people with well-maintained beards in denim and leather aprons. <laughs> this image relies on the stories of the bourbon trails of Kentucky and Tennessee, all of them populated by frontiersmen, salt-of-the-earth types who carried their Scottish and Irish drinking traditions on their backs. But, it turns out, the eponymous Jack Daniel learned to make whiskey using what is his company's patented charcoal filtration system from an enslaved man named Nathan Nearest Green. Green was a master distiller, and yet he had a master. Before the bourbon industry flourished in the 1800s, there were no official records documenting its real history. That this great American craft culture was crafted, its grains harvested, milled, and fermented by people whose labor was demanded for free. The whiskey we imbibe is sweet, smoky, delicious, caramely, and fictive. It's a lowball glass filled with American mythology served neat. I propose that we change the benchmark phrase of American food, as American as apple pie, and say it's as American as chop suey. <laughs> chop suey, a dish of stir-fried meat and vegetables, was introduced in the late 1800s after Chinese laborers arrived to build most of the Western railroads. Chop suey became so desirable that by the turn of the 20th century, cities like San Francisco and New York were filled with chop suey houses gastronomic temples where foodies went to show how sophisticated and cosmopolitan they were. Who exactly created chop suey has been lost to history, but what we now know is that it is a thoroughly American invention. It took over 30 years for any Americans to realize that, in China, no one had heard of their beloved dish. <laughs> Translated from Cantonese, the name means odds and ends. The dish that so many Americans were head over heels for Leftovers, basically. <laughs> While Americans fell in love with Chinese food, they weren't so keen on actual Chinese people. As chop suey's popularity flourished, so did anti-Chinese sentiment. The Chinese Exclusion Act, prohibiting all immigration of people from China, was enforced from 1882 to 1902. It was the only time in American history when a group of people was excluded, banned, specifically because of their national origin or ethnicity. The only time, of course, until now. So have another shot of whiskey, <laughs> eat some more pie, and get cozy under this blanket of words, community, and warmth. But just remember that nostalgia, at its best, is a tidy fantasy that erases so many of us. At its worst, it's the hazy, fading dream of an imagined past, the invocation of a mythical, pure America, a call to return to a greatness that never was. I have never been more afraid of nostalgia than I am right now. Cheers. Our next reader is Margot Kahn. Miles City. At a certain time, the boots coming into the bison bar were crusted with shit. It was mid-April, late afternoon, and Louise and I had been there since God knows when. She'd picked me up at the library where I was killing time. She could tell I didn't belong there. I was just passing through. My boots were the giveaway. Clean, crepe-soled boulets with pink uppers, half hidden beneath my jeans. In the next room, a woman was half bent under a green banker's light, shooting pool by herself. That's Franny, Louise said. 
She's always here. Franny had lines in her face like the rings of a tree. She didn't look at anyone, kept her eyes on the prize, even as the door opened and the light fell in on us. The men at the door were cast in shadows until they got close enough that we could smell them. Wet wool, blood, tobacco, mud. Merle took, to the, took the seat to the left of me. Louise was on my right. Howdy, Merle, Louise said. Louise, he said, touching the brim of his hat and then extending a hand bent up every which way in my direction. Ma'am, he said, pleased to meet you. He lifted his right foot onto the bar of the, of the stool and some shit mud flaked off onto the floor. The warm weather had been good for the calving and most everything had been going as well as could be expected. A few gone sideways, a few so big they lost the heifers, the orphan calves grafted onto other mothers. Merle and Louise talked about all this across me as if I were a fence post or an open window, across me, over me, through me. I looked at Merle's hands and imagined them up inside me, up to the elbows, up to the shoulder, pulling me inside out. All those heifers so heavy with purpose and Merle their deliverance. I was making my way west again, the one place that pulled me. I'd left Ohio years before, gone west and then east, and now back again. Ohio wasn't a place where I had deep roots. It wasn't where my people long ago staked a claim. It was where my grandparents happened to land during the war, a place they dug in deep enough to give their offspring a chance. And for me, that chance looked like someplace else. Again, the door opened and the light was hanging on. This time, laughter. The seats at both ends of the bar filled, and the stool next to Merle was taken by a younger man in the same thick shirt, the same shit boots, the same hands, only slightly more limber. Merle's voice dropped, and now the conversation required fewer words. Full pints appeared before me and Louise. We looked to the right and then to the left, and they touched their hats to their brims, to their brims and we smiled and lifted the new glasses to our lips. The boys to the right were telling stories. The one about the kid who roped a bear down in Yellowstone and the sheriff who came out and arrested him and took him into jail. The kid went before the judge and the judge said, what were you thinking, roping a bear? And the kid said, well, sir, it's something I've always wanted to do. And there he was, and I had my rope. And the judge said, was it hard? And the kid said, no, sir, the roping wasn't hard. It was the letting him go that was difficult. <laughs> Louise invited me to stay the night at her place, a trailer on the edge of town. But the next time the door opened, the light had gone flat, and the outside world was no longer a place we wished to be. The cowboys who came in now had clean hats and clean shirts and belt buckles as big as pie plates. The tall one with the busted nose ordered a whiskey and tipped his chin in our direction. Louise, he said. Even though she was an unashamed Democrat, a single woman in her 30s who lived alone, Louise had grown up here and was a part of this place in a way I would never be. Jude, she said, want to tell us about it? Well, he said, turning so we could see the whole mess of his face. It seems like every time I leave Montana, someone wants to kick my ass. Louise laughed, but in Jude's voice, I was here and there and going many ways at once. The break in his nose, the glint of his buckle, the cant of his boot heel resting so casually at the end of a long leg. There was the place I had left that would always be with me and the place yet unknown where I was going. If home was the place I had left behind, what would I call my place of becoming? And how would I know it when I got there? Franny, Merle, Louise, and Jude, and me, we were all separately specks of light, small and shining. Jude was drawn up to the bar. Franny was taking a cut shot. Merle and the others were filtering out into the evening, getting back to the heifers who couldn't be left alone. There are things in this world that are urgent and necessary, and all I could think was, don't leave.
So this is from an essay about funeral pie. I have never been served funeral pie at a funeral. I have eaten miniature meringue or lemon meringue pies, stacks of chocolate chip cookies, coffee cake hunks of indeterminable variety and inestimable age, but not what I am told is a German or maybe an Amish tradition of funeral pie, also known as Rosina pie, also known as sour cream raisin. Maybe I haven't been to enough funerals. It's a sweet made by farm mothers to trick their children into eating spoiled cream, said the second prize winner at the storytelling contest I host for the Iowa State Fair. I think of fruit as a symbol and reward of the passing seasons, which makes raisins, dried grapes that have refused to rot, stop time. From what I can tell, it's called funeral pie because it's made with ingredients that are available year-round, which was handy in pre-refrigeration days when somebody croaked in January. The Iowans I've met who fondly remember it insist that funeral pie can't be properly made without a cow. Fresh cream gone bad, not the store-bought stuff. My first close encounter with funeral pie was in front of an audience. At the Iowa State Fair, food judging mostly takes place before a gathered crowd of competitors who sit in folding chairs, chatting amongst themselves in the air conditioning while they wait for a verdict. That first time at the fair, still an outsider, I was assigned the pies nobody else seemed to want. Gooseberry, rhubarb, and sour cream raisin. What is sour cream raisin? I asked Joanne, my note taker. Just be glad you didn't get mincemeat, she said. My first bite was underwhelming. Library paste is how Jen Bourbon and Ron Silver of Bubby's Homemade Pies describe it. They weren't far off, though the description probably has more to do with the beige hue of the filling than the heavy cornstarch texture of some versions than any whiff of actual glue. In other words, the pie was fine. It was one of those slices that doesn't knock you out, but it could comfort in a pinch. Sour cream raisin pie could even be a perfect symbol of the Iowa State Fair. Modest materials presented for this civic occasion as grandly as possible, tarted up and shown off in a culture where demanding attention tends to be frowned on, punished with gossip, and condemned as self-interest at the expense of the community. <laughs> for those New York types, something's gotta be in it for them, says one of my fellow judges. Are you East Coast elite or West Coast elite? A dry humored rector asked me before I taught a pie class in his, the basement of his church. West Coast, I said, but my parents are from Iowa. You're probably wondering by now, so I'll tell you. If you wanna bake a prize-winning sour cream raisin pie, be aware of these five dangers. And you will win a contest with this if you wanna write it down, now's the time. First among them is liberal use of spices, particularly cloves. This pie is supposed to be heavily spiced, but not so much that the filling tastes like a mouthful of essential oils. Cloves are particularly assertive when too concentrated and more noticeably off when old. So get a fresh jar and don't use more than a quarter teaspoon. The second danger is a soggy bottom crust, which can be solved by freezing the unfilled, unbaked crust for at least 10 minutes before filling it. Third, the filling must not be too cloyingly sweet. Reduce the sugar content in the filling of any given funeral pie to one cup total, no more. Serve this pie cold if possible. The sweet cream, spice, and dried fruit tastes get along better if they've had some time to chill. Fourth is meringue, which I enjoy eating but avoid making and so cannot command believable authority to help you with it here. I can tell you that the blue ribbon winner had a nice, evenly brown pile on top of his or her entry, and that it perfectly balanced the heavier flavors below. All right, fifth, be hair aware. My first bite of funeral pie at the Iowa State Fair remained connected to its slice by a thin white strand of hair so bright and so long that the front row gasped and sprang back as I brought the bite to my mouth. Is there a spider in my pie, I thought. And then I saw the hair, picked it off, slung the bite in the garbage, spun the offending dessert 180 degrees, sliced a new triangle and sampled that, mustering the best stone face I could for the benefit of the baker, who was almost certainly one of the horrified people in the audience. 
In my judging notes, I covered the hair in a feedback sandwich, written in beautiful cursive by Joanne. <laughs> Lovely presentation. Hair and pie, unfortunately. <laughs> Buttery crust could have been more salty, but overall pretty good. They really appreciate the feedback, Joanne assured me. I wanted to say my pie was a disaster, yes, but don't worry. At the Iowa State Fair, there's always next year. As I progressed through my sour cream and raisin feast, a bite from the tip to test filling, a bite from the end to test crust, two bites for only the best pies, I did not grow to love sour cream raisin so much as to understand what it offered. This is a pie that tastes best once it's been wetted by memory to the circumstance of its serving. A funeral lunch, let's say, where all the mourners are cried out and ready to swap funny stories about their dead. I remember watching my uncle at his wife's funeral lunch, at the head of the head table with his daughter and son, their partners, their kids, him the fifth wheel, the uncoupled, presiding over us as he had at his wedding. He didn't have much of an appetite that day, but he kept his seat until lunch was done. After the salads and sandwiches and soup, we were served something sweet that didn't demand attention, a brownie or cookie, something like that, I can't remember. It would have been the perfect time for funeral pie, except the name was maybe too dark, too directly referential of the ritual we were about to finish, too much a reminder that when this was all over, we'd have to return to daily lives where loss is not so easily accommodated. To expect a swoon-worthy performance of every sweet is to expect too much of sweetness. Sometimes dessert needs to soothe, not dazzle. Moving on is wrenching. Sugar helps. Sam Ligon. Hey, y'all. Hey, I know many of you have heard Robert Lashley read and know how great he is. He is going to read after me. We got the phone malfunction fixed. So he will be up after me. Uh, this book has eight pie recipes in it, along with all this great writing. Eight pie recipes, eight cocktail recipes. I'm going to read abbreviated cocktail recipes right now. The first one is called The Lonely Martha. Everyone knows George Washington cut down his father's cherry tree with a hatchet and couldn't lie about it. What most people don't know is that he also chopped off Thomas Jefferson's hands with a gator knife and then pretended he didn't. Jefferson was furious, of course. He took a glove between his teeth and threw it to the floor at Washington's feet. Everyone was sad and surprised about Jefferson killing Washington with a dueling pistol when he didn't even have hands, but then Benjamin Franklin bucked America up by inventing electricity and a classic craft cocktail called the Lonely Martha. And everyone won! Ingredients, a shrub, a hatchet, whiskey, sweet vermouth, a cherry, bitters, dueling pistols. How to make a lonely Martha. Find a shrub and chop it down with the hatchet. Admit that you've chopped it down. Now make a Manhattan. I use bourbon, but you can also use rye. People in Wisconsin use brandy. No one knows why. Some people insist that Manhattan must be served up, that ice must not melt in it. These people should be driven back to Portland. But wait, you're making a cocktail. Make the cocktail. Admire the dueling pistols. Is the current president doing anything right? Who knows? Sip your drink and imagine how idiotic your face would look on money. <laughs> Two, Emma's revelation. When Joseph Smith informed her that God wanted him to have a bunch of new wives, Emma Smith was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. But it was all written out. God saying, I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant, Joseph Smith, and to none else. But if she will not abide this commandment, she shall be destroyed. That night, an angel of the Lord came to Emma Smith and said, God didn't really tell Joseph any of that. Joseph just wants to have sex with lots of women. And Emma was like, but he said it wasn't about the sex. And the angel was like, they always say that. And Emma was like, but he said... And the angel was like, listen to me. 
Here's the revelation. Joseph is full of shit, okay? Remember what he said about matrimonial alliances with the natives, Mormon men taking native wives that their posterity may become white and delightsome? That's just fucking insane. <laughs> Ingredients, a sister wife chore wheel, whiskey, sweet vermouth, bitters, a Navy Colt revolver, his grandmother's china. How to make an Emma's revelation. Place the sister wife chore wheel on the table. Make a Manhattan. Bourbon or rye, it doesn't matter. People in Wisconsin use brandy, who cares? Arrange his grandmother's china on the counter propped on little stands facing you. Sit at the table. Scribble salad plate over one window of the chore wheel. Scribble gravy boat over another. Yes, you loved him once. So what? Cry if you want to. Cry until you can't cry anymore. Make another drink. Spin the wheel. Raise the revolver. Aim at the appropriate piece of china. Everybody wants this. Even his grandmother. Even all those girls he's lied to. Especially them. One more sip to steady your hand. Revelate. Three, the Sacagawea Sour. Everybody loved Lewis because he was beautiful and insane and his first name was Meriwether. Clark was the problem. They were both problems, actually. But Clark would refresh the men with a glass of whiskey, then charge John Collins with getting drunk on his post out of whiskey, put under his charge as sentinel, and for suffering Hugh Hall to draw whiskey out of said barrel. Let me tell you something. Hugh Hall was not suffering anything that morning until Clark whipped him while Lewis lay weeping in his tent. The idiots were always handing out flags and naming everything they saw as if nothing had been seen or named before. I call this island Bad Humored Island, Clark would say, and I'd think, I call this island Asshole Island. <laughs> while Clark was having people whipped, Lewis was getting high and looking at plants and animals, smelling everything he touched, then looking at his hands and sniffing his fingers. It was a long trip is what I'm trying to tell you. The idiot Clark would not stop calling me Janie. Ingredients, eight fluid drams laudanum, whiskey, sweet vermouth, bitters, a cherry. How to make a Sacagawea sour. Just make the fucking drink, okay? You know how, it's a Manhattan, all right? Sit at the table, look at the laudanum, sip your drink, say this under your breath core of discovery. Shake your head, smell your fingertips. Imagine the idiots whipping each other to pieces. Say it again, core of discovery. Scoff, mutter, drink. Promise yourself never to lead anyone anywhere ever again. <laughs> Our next reader is Robert Lassley. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, everyone. I'll be fast. Um, this poem is called Landscaped with the Homeboy Who Growl at Street Harassers to Get Them Off Their Mama's Back. Never look a hot comb in the teeth, queen, yet the eviction notice is a starless gyre. The first project death is not ice or fire, but an exodus from concrete and shelter. Men speak of royals and drink their ripple. Nationhood is a mask that has no face to the kingmakers of the block and corner. Though Sundays is no rest to azure pharaohs, their light shows they live in outlines. Fallen gladiator bros among flock frock deacons in the tatters and invisible shields. They holler and make noise in invisible fields, yet rent is realer than space, though not on this corner. Never look a hot comb in the teeth, queen. Yet heavy is the crown on Hosmer. Thank you. Our next reader is Gary Lilly. It's Friday night, the first in months that I don't have to work, a janitor in the long rooms of small cubicles. 
I am the politely unseen. Despite the black water fishing, pies in the oven and barbecue, North Carolina is a postcard that you hobo out of. And so tonight, my buddy Chris and I sing Lead Belly, Trance Blues, Gospel, and Woody Guthrie songs. November is nothing but the promise of snow. We are blue, tattooed, and neither of us lately have been regular churchgoers or drinkers. But here we are, the maker's mark is on the table. A spirit in the jar, our holy war. Behold, the blessed laborers have jobs. Carolina is no warm spot in the winter. An old man, a Vietnam vet, got shot by a young addicted girl. Bored cops are dangerous, stay off the roads. I wonder how it was before the devil was released. Nobody here rides easy. Guitars in hand, we are the low wage who are not to be messed with tonight. Bulls and a rebellion, music and the static. An older black man and a post-punk kid. Take Carolina and give it to the crows. We huddle in front of the space heater that keeps the front room warm. Water pipes are bursting in Winston. I leave a thin, cold stream flowing from all the faucets to prevent freezing. I need to get the cold out of my bones. Thank you. Sean Vestal. Hi. It's called Frito Pie. <clears throat> It's time to eat, but mom wants to talk. Name your favorite food, she orders in a slurry, deliberate voice. She has called us to dinner, my sister and I, and we arrive to find her sitting with the blinds drawn and nothing on the table but a fine pelt of dust in my mother's juice glass, half full of amber liquid that looks like apple juice and smells like Listerine, and we have no idea what is going on, but something is certainly going on. Come on, Mom growls, what's your favorite food? It is not clear which one of us she's talking to. My sister says pizza, resentfully, and Mom slaps her hand on the table and shouts, that's like saying your favorite food is sandwich. <laughs> My sister says, I have literally no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> My mother says, literally? and takes a wincing sip from the glass. Another sip that looks as if it is hurt, causing shooting pains in her face. She turns to me and asks, buddy? I guess pie, I say. I am thinking of the chocolate cream pies my sister buys with her Safeway money on Fridays after school when she gets her checks. The frozen chocolate cream pies with whipped cream piped along the edges, which we eat straight from the pan Forks in hand, pie on the carpet between us while we watch television in those wonderful, luscious hours before our parents return from work and begin orbiting in separate, angry spheres. Mom stares at me contemptuously. What did I just say, she asks. What did I just say about pizza and sandwich? <laughs> I try to remember. <laughs> Everything seems to be happening behind a thick pane of glass. She breaks her stare, takes another face-hurting drink, and sucks air through her teeth. You children, she says. Pie, she says. My sister says, screw this, and scoots back her chair. Mom slaps the table again. Sit down, she says, and my sister, who never actually stood up, scoots her chair back in. <laughs> this obedience is astonishing and then frightening because she never obeys. 
Mom sighs heavily as though she is exhaling all the mass of her body. And she says, whenever anyone tells me they like pie, they love pie, I always say, yeah, you like pie? Have you ever had Frito pie, pie lover? <laughs> Strips of sunset are poking through the blinds now, lighting up the hairy dust on the table. Mom stands, tips up her glass, and lunges into the kitchen. From the cabinet above the fridge, she pulls down a bag of Fritos, and from the lazy Susan, she retrieves a can of chili. Fumblingly, she opens the chili and sticks it in the microwave, and my sister says, you're not supposed to put metal in there, and mom says, just who is the parent and who is the child? The microwave sparks and smokes. Mom brings the bag of Fritos to the table and sets it face down in the middle, ceremoniously, grandly, between us, her children, and she tears it open along the back seam, making a crinkly bowl of the bag. The smell of greasy fried corn wafts up into the scorched Listerine air. She puts on an oven mitt, reaches into the cupboard, brings out a bottle of whiskey, splashes some into her juice glass and some onto the counter, puts it back and then opens the microwave and takes out the chili, label blackened. Brings it to the table, the can in a mitted hand and upends it over the gaping bag. Two drops of red liquid fall onto the curled tan chips. Mom says, holy jumpin' Jesus Christ. And a can-shaped cylinder of chili slumps onto the Fritos. She hands us each a fork and says, dig in. My sister and I look, each, look at each other, and in that look, we divide ourselves from everyone else in the world. Mom and dad included, mom and dad especially. We cease with that look being unwitting about our station. We are prisoners like the prisoners in Hogan's Heroes, and we will now begin our prisonerhood in earnest, unflaggingly, eyes open with secrets and subterfuge and underground tunnels and microphones in the teapots and the cheerful, sustaining knowledge that someday we will be free. And until then, we will humor our captors. Where's dad, my sister asks. Mom takes a heaping forkful of Frito pie into her mouth. Bits of chip and bean fall to the table. She says, gone to see a man about a horse, and snorts. Bits of Frito pie flying into the Frito pie. And my sister says, with massive, glorious sarcasm, he went to the bathroom? Mom says, never you mind. She eats and eats. At some point, she begins talking, telling us a story, I think, but between the huge mouthfuls of Frito pie and the slurring, and then eventually the weeping, it is impossible to understand her. Thanks. Our next reader is Jess Walter. Thank you. Um, I read this at Pie and Whiskey 2, so this is an old one. It's called Cheston, with an exclamation point. Something was the matter with the baby. He seems depressed, said the father. I don't think babies can get depressed, said the mother. She suspected Cheston was mimicking the father, who sometimes affected the sort of spiritual weariness that blues players exhibited or aging gunfighters. Anyone can get depressed, the father said defensively. He wondered if the mother calling Cheston the baby wasn't the real problem. He was, after all, nearly four. The father decided to start calling him Buddy. Cheston was playing Legos. The father walked over. What are you building, Buddy? Gallows, Cheston said. <laughs> The mother tried to sound cheerful. Whom were you hanging? <laughs> Buddy, the father added. Hope, Cheston said. The Lego man twisted in the still air. How about the trampoline place for your birthday, the mother asked. Cheston was coloring. He only used one color, black. SpongeBob, Squidward, Patrick, he colored them all black. I don't care. 
We could have the party here. Doesn't matter, Cheston said. <laughs> well, who should we invite? Mother, Cheston dropped the black crayon into the crease of the coloring book. I do not care. But it's your fourth birthday, she said. Yes, I am aware of that. <laughs> Cheston's blonde hair swooped in a curling sea on his forehead and his eyelashes batted like waking butterflies. Finally, he sighed. Maybe Cameron. Cameron, yes, the mother said, because I hate Cameron. <laughs> Why would you say that, Cheston? Why would anyone say anything? Someone was nicking the father's scotch. He drank only pricey single malts, Lefroig, Ardberg, Brulladee. The father suspected their housekeeper. The bottles were kept in a series of tall cabinets in a closet off his study. The father had just decided to mark the open bottles with a Sharpie when he saw something under one of the liquor cabinets, a sippy cup lid. The father walked to Cheston's bedroom doorway. The boy had his back to the father facing the window and was palming his Batman sippy cup like a brandy snifter. <laughs> he swirled the drink. Ice clinked. The father was dumbfounded. Who puts 30-year-old scotch on rocks? The psychologist removed her glasses. Well, technically, there's nothing wrong with Cheston. The way she said nothing wrong made the father think that having nothing wrong might be the worst thing that could be wrong with someone. We did standard testing, associative play. Cheston's a bright boy as far as that's concerned. The psychologist looked over the frames of her glasses. And there's been no recent trauma? No, they both said too quickly without looking at one another. They lived well in nine rooms on Central Park West. The father had inherited a great deal of money and his work was managing his own wealth. The mother volunteered at charities. We should be careful, the psychologist said, trying to diagnose what might just be a reasoned belief system. My, my son is Jeffrey Dahmer, thought the mother. <laughs> what I'm saying, the psychologist said, and took off her glasses, is that I don't think Cheston is depressed. I think, well, she chewed her lip. I think your baby is a nihilist. <laughs> At halftime, Cheston's soccer coach pulled the father aside. Listen, the coach said, I appreciate Cheston's unique personality, but he keeps shooting at our goal. <laughs> it was true. Cheston's condition had progressed to myriological nihilism. He no longer believed in the composition of things. For Cheston, one goalpost was just like another. In fact, it was no different than a telephone pole or a doghouse. Maybe play him at forward, the father suggested. In the second half, Cheston no longer observed the random nature of sidelines. He dribbled through the parents to the next field over and blasted the ball into the street. Good kick, buddy, yelled the father. <laughs> Monkey shoeshine lumber truck, Cheston said at dinner one night. What, his mother asked. Balamagafu, Cheston said. Then he made a farting noise and stabbed himself in the leg with his fork. While the mother put him to bed, the father looked it up online. Epistemological nihilism, the father said. He's denying the validity of all knowledge, language, ritual. It's all lost meaning. He's given into complete abstraction. The psychologist said to bring him in on Monday. The mother gripped the phone. What if Monday's too late? Oh, toddlers are incapable of that, the psychologist said, of harming themselves. But that hadn't even occurred to the mother. She was afraid of something else. The father came out of his study, holding in one hand Kant's critique of pure reason, and in the other, Heidegger's nihilism as determined by the history of being. This is interesting, he said. If we can get him to differentiate between being and a being, then maybe, maybe, low clouds raced past the window. The mother sighed. I've had a lover for two years. <laughs> Me too, the father said, <laughs> for almost four. 
And you're gay, the mother said. Yes, the father said. I turned tricks in college, the mother said. I didn't even need the money. It was probably the last time I was happy. I've never been happy, the father said. I know, said the mother. I embezzle money from my sister's accounts. I hate volunteering. I despise the poor. The father searched for something else to say. I wear your underwear, he said finally. Yes, the mother said, I know. The father held up the Heidegger book. I don't understand a fucking word of this, Cecilia. The mother began weeping because her name wasn't Cecilia. <laughs> Buddy, the father cried. Turkey shoe blindfold, the mother said, but even as she said it, she couldn't remember what those words meant. The father yanked down his pants and his wife's underpants. He peed all over the marble floor. Happy birthday, Cheston said from the doorway. <laughs> Our next and final reader tonight is Kristen Miores Young. I first delivered this piece when I was pregnant with my second son, as many sons and as many years. Thank you to Sam and Kate for bringing us together tonight. Being pregnant is a beautiful thing. Don't rounded bellies and fulsome breasts give you a warm sense that all is right in the world? If not, seek therapy. Gestation is fundamentally good. So everyone tells me. I've done many things I'm proud of, not enough, mind you. But never in my life have I garnered so much praise and congratulations merely by walking down the street. And while there is beauty in being so revered, this admiration casts a long shadow. As a woman, I've been subject to mighty pressures to conform. Be sweet, not angry. Don't furrow your brow, and if you do, paralyze that face for those lines cut too deep. Don't fret when men talk over you. Smile, hear them out, and offer a thoughtful response. Stay pretty as long as possible. Be glad to give up what you love for your children. But I am loud, and I find myself scowling when I write or think or talk or do anything that requires focus. My abuela fears I'll never conquer my temper, and she's probably right about that. My family, all of them, consider my husband to be a miracle only because I possess a strong character. It's not a joke. And yet, I buckle. There's power in numbers. To succumb to expectation gives access to privilege that no one wants to talk about because they don't want anyone to notice how compromised they too have become. In other words, I get away with more when I'm dressed nice. I got away with the most when I looked single. If you could only see my closet, so many dresses designed to maximize my best features and minimize any evidence of the unfeminine appetite for excess that all my friends know I possess. Soon, I won't have the time or energy to pull myself together, and I'll feel that full fall from social grace. I'm fine with it, I think. But in the realm of child rearing, I deferred for years and have attempted to mitigate that risk by having two children at 33 and 34, just 18 months apart. Beyond 35, there be dragons in that uterus, <laughs> so we're told. And as I've blossomed, soaked in the adulation of family and friends and even strangers for whom I am perfect because I am procreating, I realized how direly I've craved that approbation since childhood and how its presence reveals to me what I've long suspected. We withhold praise from one another on a daily basis. Why should this be? What generosity of spirit resides unspeaking within so many, only to be unlocked by the sight of a woman waddling through her third trimester? Now, I'm the kind of person who says hello to everybody. This small town friendliness plays pretty well in Columbia City. Though I found it alarms a certain sector of the population, you know who they are. Those who smile, look at their phones or the cracks in the sidewalk or they don't have a phone in their hands. 
Those who respond are often surprised by being addressed by a fellow human. The best of them, like the old man who blessed me for picking up trash, start a conversation that continues. And yet, during my pregnancies, I have been astounded by the sheer number of people who for the first time see our common humanity as reason enough to greet me. In the beginning, I was taken aback. Must I spawn to merit acknowledgement? After reflecting on these exchanges during the long months of gestation, I've come to see a higher truth. Until I decided to become a parent, these people didn't think we shared enough experience to warrant a relationship. I became visible when my choices affirmed their values, which makes me sadder than I want to be when I'm carrying a child. If only we could uncouple the bounty of our empathy from the performance of a common task. And while I have framed this potential in its negative light, I do believe that joining the parenting tribe has proven to me the possibility of human connection and show me the closest thing I've ever seen, the divine. Society demands to be born anew. Without an unceasing supply of children, no institution on earth, not even the economy, would survive. And so, advocacy for procreation is relentless. By enacting reproduction, I create our collective future and serve through my body a vital function. And as usual, to correct for ills elsewhere, the system makes impossible demands of the worker. With the providence of fertility come expectations of purity that would shorten the life expectancy of any expecting woman. What I wouldn't give for a goddamn whiskey. <laughs> Y'all be careful about who slices your pie. <laughs> Thanks for streaming this extra episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 CF. Happy Thanksgiving from the crew at Speakers Forum. Tune in again soon.